Last year at Halloween, my son wanted to be the young adult book character Percy Jackson. So I dressed up as Percy's father, the Greek god Poseidon. I even made a great trident. My wife was Athena, and my baby daughter was Cupid. We were all excited to walk around the neighborhood, see what everybody else was wearing, and of course collect that sweet, sweet candy. Since all of us were out trick-or-treating, there was no one home to hand out candy from our house. So before we left, I put a bowl out front full of candy with a sign that said, Please take one. We left the house, made the rounds, and then headed home. As we were nearing our house, I saw a teenaged Batman on our stoop pour the whole bowl of candy into his bag and run off. I yelled out an indignant, hey, and thought about chasing him down and poking him with my trident. But I reconsidered when I remembered my general lack of physical fitness. I was annoyed at this very unheroic Batman, but I shouldn't have really been surprised. There was, after all, no one there to enforce the rule to just take one piece of candy. And with no rules, it's easy for humans to be tempted to be selfish. We are imperfect creatures. Sometimes we do things that are only in our best interest without considering how our actions impact others. These are insights the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes was well aware of. In his 1651 text, Leviathan, he explores the best way to govern ourselves, taking into account our human imperfections, shortcomings, and natural tendencies. This book is not purporting to say anything specific to any time or place. It is aiming at supposedly universal human truths uh, about psychology and about the types of political society we need, given the way we are. My name is Susanna Siegel. I'm a professor of philosophy at Harvard University, where I've taught for about 20 years. I'd love to hear a little bit about your relationship to this text. Why, why is it a text that you come back to again and again and find rewarding? The first chunk of it is about psychology. You would never know that it's a work about politics uh, if you only read the first part of it. Um, and so the reason I, I like it so much and come back to it so much is because uh, you could see this book as really being about the kind of emotional underside of politics. Um, it brings into focus the fact that politics has an emotional underside. Um, uh, so for any political arrangement, you could ask what kinds of habits of mind, states of mind, activities, um, uh, characteristics, personalities, uh, what kinds of, of mental properties facilitate that political arrangement. Um, and then vice versa, you could ask what kinds of states of mind are uh, afforded or facilitated by a political arrangement. And Hobbes was interested in, in both of these questions. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Susanna Siegel to discuss Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan. What do we know about where he was raised and how and how he was capable of writing such a, such a brilliant work? He was born in the 16th century in 1588. Um, he dies in 1679. Um, he's born in England, and he therefore lives through the, the English Civil Wars, uh, which were very troubling to him. The English Civil Wars took place between 1642 and 1651. The royalists and parliamentarians were fighting over how England, Scotland, and Ireland should be governed. Their main disagreement was over who should have more power, the king or parliament. 
So it was very much about should you have uh, should you have sort of one person whose word is final, or should you have some sort of collective? And if there's going to be both of these bodies, what will be the relationship between them? Hobbes was on the side of the royalists. In fact, a few years earlier in 1640, he wrote a short treatise called The Elements of Law, supporting the royalist view. As the parliamentarians gained more power, Hobbes feared his writings would get him into trouble. And so Hobbes went into exile uh, around 1640 to Paris, as many others did. Um, and that's where he began to write Leviathan, which was published in, in 1651. In Leviathan, Hobbes proposes his theory of government. He believed that we need laws and political order to avoid chaos. The laws of society will help us interact with each other in a predictable, moral way. And they work in part because we don't have to think about them. They fade into the background. That's why we like them. So you don't think about driving on the right or waiting to cross the street um, because you don't have to. And that's the beauty of the law. Um, it allows you not to have to negotiate every single interaction afresh with somebody. It lets you know what you can expect um, from people. Uh, so, but when that's taken away and you have a situation where you don't know what to expect from other people or the laws aren't providing the mechanisms of coordination that we rely on them for, um, then all of a sudden the, the questions that could otherwise seem very abstract seem extraordinarily immediate. Um, and so that was Hobbes' situation. And I think that's part of what enabled him um, to really begin from the beginning. Hobbes took human perfection into consideration when exploring what types of government would be best. The fact that he has a big section on what he considers to be deep, immutable truths about psychology shows that he thinks there's quite a bit of constraint from individual nature on what kinds of political societies will actually work. The English Civil Wars had a huge impact on Hobbes. He was especially struck by the difficulties that can arise from having more than one individual in charge. Anyone who's ever been on a committee has at probably at moments probably thought, wouldn't it just be easier if we just had one person to just kind of do this all themselves? And so there's a deep truth in, in it certainly is simpler. And there are certainly are political problems that are avoided if you just have one person deciding. Like, you know, you don't have to figure out how to weigh the advantages and drawbacks of different proposals. Um, so um, it certainly does avoid that. And in the midst of the English Civil Wars, to Hobbes, on his reflection, it seemed that those, those problems and difficulties were really not solvable, um, that there was no basis of reason in which you could ever choose one thing or the other. Um, and that if you did try to choose, what would happen is you would have this residual political instability. Um, and so the only, the only thing that would actually work, it's not that just this thing would be best, it's the only thing he thought would actually work uh, would be to have one authoritarian ruler who's the absolute sovereign. So the book is about a problem. Uh, and the problem arises from two familiar ideas that everyone I've ever taught accepts. And those are the ideas that first, there's no natural inequality between the ruler and the ruled. So that when you come to have political inequalities, that is a structure of somebody who's the ruler and other people who are the ruled, that's never a fact of nature. This is just a premise for him. 
And the second idea he's starting from is that similarly, there's no political, no natural inequalities of any kind, interestingly, between among the ruled. So you and I are equally vulnerable, he says, even if you're much bigger and stronger than me, um, we're equally vulnerable to one another and to other things. So you have these two starting ideas, no natural political inequality, either between the rulers and the ruled or among the people who are ruled. And those premises give you a problem. The book is about the problem. And the problem is, if there's no natural political inequality, then what are the grounds of government? So how could there ever come to be any sort of justified um, political arrangement at all? If we're all equal, how can any one person or group of people justify being in charge? Yeah, what, how do, and what gives them the right to rule? And one of his um, lasting contributions to this question was really a way of answering it. We know that where he ends up is, oh, uh, there's going to be some authoritarian, you know, absolute sovereign. But how could anybody have the right to rule? His approach to answering this question is he's asking, um, he's arguing that uh, if everybody acted rationally, they would agree to be governed. And more specifically, he thinks they'd agree to be governed by an absolute sovereign, this absolute authoritarian leader. So that approach kicked off what we call the social contract tradition in political philosophy, which lasts has lasted for centuries um, in Western political thought as a way of going about answering this question, um, that the right to rule uh, is grounded in what would be rational for people to select. The social contract theory says that all individuals in a society surrender some of their freedoms and submit to the authority of the sovereign ruler. In exchange, the sovereign ruler protects the individual's remaining rights and maintains the social order. But why does he think that that is the rational choice for individuals? Well, the way he argues for this, the way he carries out his uh, method is by asking another question, which has had an enormous amount of influence on political philosophy and political theory, which is, well, let's consider, he says, let's consider what life would be like without political institutions. And that's what he's calling the state of nature. The state of nature is a state without kings, government, or social order. In the state of nature, people behave how they want to behave. There are no laws saying what you can or cannot do. Nobody's saying, here's where the road has to be, here's where the path has to be. Um, you know, there are no property rights. Um, there is no, um, there is no organized community that says, here's what we're going to grow, and here's where we're going to grow it, and here's how we're going to divide it up. Um, there is no scheme of security. There is no scheme of distribution. Um, there is no hospital or doctor or anything. It's just everybody's kind of interacting without any kind of regulation at all. Um, and one of his first, his first uh, conclusion, his first answer to the question of, well, what would life be like under a state of nature is that it would be what he calls a state of war. And when he says it's a state of war, of course, you, you immediately think people at war and, and isn't it usually countries that are at war and wait, but there's no countries. But what he means by a state of war is not necessarily an actual war, but rather a known disposition to uncertainty. Without political order, Hobbes says, we would spiral into chaos. And the long segments on human psychology are there in order to 
for him to make the case that we have dispositions to treat each other um, with violence, with disrespect, with aggression. Um, we also might have, it's important to note uh, that he thinks this, um, we also might have dispositions to cooperate and to be in solidarity with one another. It's just that there isn't any way for us to act stably on those dispositions without a government to enforce things. Without laws, you don't know how someone is going to act toward you. You know, it's pretty terrifying if somebody does attack you, but it's also pretty unsettling to not know whether they're going to attack you. And one of the things he says people would do in the state of nature that makes it a state of war is if I don't know how you're going to act toward me, he says, well, it's actually rational for me then to preemptively take some of the things you're considering your stuff. Of course, there's no property, but there's stuff that you are interacting with and there's the pillow you're sleeping on. Maybe I want that pillow. Maybe you're going to take my pillow. So perhaps I should take your pillow first. And Hobbes, despite not having any social psychology labs or doing any experiments, had some extremely lasting insights. Um, my favorite one of which uh, is, I think, the most important one, which is that people are prone to think of themselves as better than other people or more worthy. It's very easy to be come to consider yourself as, you know, superior in some way, not just fresh off the ground, but really the main predictor he thinks of when this happens is if somebody else does it to you. <laughs> so for example, if you think to middle school or something where you learn that, or high school or anytime, when someone, you learn that someone thinks you're sort of not that great, um, that they're kind of better than you. And you might just react with, you know, incredulity, but usually your response to that is not to say, oh no, we're all equal. Usually your response is, what do you mean? She thinks she's better than me, I'm better than her. You know, you sort of react in the opposite way. And he thought this was an incredibly fecund emotion that would just lead to cycles and effect of, of vengeance. Um, and when it took a violent form, which he thought it would, both rationally and irrationally in the state of nature, you get the kind of narrative one finds in so-called mafia movies or whatever, like you kill my brother, I kill your cousin. Um, and there's no end to that. Um, there's not any way for that to end. So I think that was an incredibly deep insight, both about what could happen interpersonally, but also what could happen politically. So if you wanted purposefully to destabilize the society, there's probably no more effective way you could choose than to say, you know, these people, they're celebrating your pain you know, they think they're better than you. And if you say that, then you will incite the people who are hearing this rumor, whether it's true or not, to regard themselves as fit to celebrate their pain. That fear of death and the uncertainty that a violent state of nature um, creates is itself something that people want to remove as soon as they can, because that uncertainty makes life unbearable. That's right. And that's the bridge from having any government to having authoritarian government, because he has very specific arguments of why you can't have um, why you can't have a bunch of committees, for example, because he said, well, suppose they disagree. But who's going to decide between the disagreement? Um, you know, you need some sort of final say. Um, and he, so that's, he thinks it will just uh, end up in instability. And in a way, the problem he's putting his finger on, though he didn't conceptualize it as a problem for democracy, really is a problem for democracy. If you instead try to have a democracy, um, a representative democracy where there's voting, um, sometimes my side will win, sometimes my side will lose. Um, well, how can I think of myself as part of this polity when I lose? 
Um, how, what's going to keep me invested in the game? Um, and if it turns out that I always lose, I might have reason to say, okay, look, forget it. <laughs> you know, there's no way for me to win. Um, whereas if it's that my political opponent today could be my political ally tomorrow, I'm not going to treat my political opponent as somebody entirely illegitimate, for example. You know, opponents treated as illegitimate. That's a way to destroy democracy because you don't have a way of feeling yourself in the game. So how do we escape the state of nature? Um, how does Hobbes describe this moment when people decide, okay, I can't live like this. I can't live with the threat of violence or the uncertainty of safety. I'm willing to do pretty much anything to escape this, that state. So the, the genius of the idea is that you're supposed to ask, well, what would it be rational to be, agree to do? And then if you can... Um, justify political arrangements on the basis of there being ones that would be rational arrangements to agree to, um, if the alternative was the state of nature, uh, then you can justify those arrangements. Um, and that same method was used by Rousseau, it was used by Rawls, it was used by Locke, it was used by many subsequent philosophers, each of whom reached a different conclusion from one another and also from Hobbes. Um, so no, there isn't a moment when you do it, um, though it's it's almost hard not to think that way because his description of it evokes a narrative of like, first it was awful and then we're like, oh, come on. And in fact, that's a very implausible narrative. I mean, if it really got to the point where people were distrustful of one another and had just been through this violence where they stole your pillow and shot your cousin, um, you know, you need a little bit of transition of some sort in order to be able to say, oh, okay, come on, let's game's over, <laughs> you know, let's just do a different thing. So it, was very, it would be very implausible as history, or for that matter, as psychology. Um, and I, maybe this is a good place to mention the fact that not every political problem, in fact, some would argue most political problems, but I would just say many, can't be solved by this method of asking what would be in the abstract rational to agree to. You can get up to a point, but if you have, for example, you know, as we have in Colombia, as we have in South Africa, as maybe we have in the United States, Germany, you know, places where, um, you know, there is a history of such systematic and long-term violence, uh, you know, that target very specific groups that stays in historical memory. It doesn't seem to completely speak to the situation to just say, well, what would you do if we were starting from scratch? Because we're never starting from scratch. So the moment individuals decide to come together and empower a sovereign, what what happens? So it isn't exactly a moment, but what he says is... Um, if you if your options were the state of nature, which he thinks is the kind of default option, and uh, if, if that was the alternative, then what it would be rational to do is it would be rational to agree to give up your right to a sovereign on the condition that everybody else agrees to give up their right. So the thing that you're agreeing to is not in that moment, in that theoretical moment, individualistic. It's a conditional. Um, it's a conditional giving up of a right. Uh, it's only rational for me to do it if everybody else does it. If I do it and they don't do it, then I'm at two people's mercy. <laughs> when all members of a society give up certain freedoms and submit to the authority of a sovereign ruler, they enter into a social contract that blurs the line between the will of the people and the will of the ruler. This is represented in the cover art of Leviathan, which shows one large man with a crown made up of many smaller men. When I give up my right to the sovereign, then I am the I am the author of the sovereign's actions. So I can't have any complaint against the sovereign um, because I'm actually doing it. 
So the image of, you know, the the reason the man is made up of men um, instead of the image being here's all the here's the mob and here's the leader <laughs> is because on his strange metaphysics of authorization, I am the author of the sovereign's actions. So actually, it wasn't somebody else harming me. I'm harming me because I'm becoming this whole. So um, an important point that I, uh, I think should be included is that uh, for Hobbes, there is no political unity or community before the state. There's no nation, for example, before the state. Um, there is only, but there, there's only political unity mm-hmm. after the state, downstream from the state. This social contract is the key. This is how people get out of the state of nature and achieve political unity. So for those who oppose the divine right of kings like Hobbes, um, what gave him that audacity to question that? The arguments that he's giving about why there's no natural um, political inequality, you know, that there are arguments for that people are equal in all the respects that would matter for political life. Um, so equal equally vulnerable to one another we can all buy we can all be tricked um we would all not like to be tricked um we are all prone to feel ourselves to be more worthy and prone to react to others who feel that way about us with more of the same um the emotions that he thought mattered for politics people were equal with respect to those um and I guess another way of putting the point is that what mattered for politics really was handling its emotional underside. So part of the reason that another reason um, that there that there has to be an absolute sovereign as opposed to a democracy or an oligarchy is that it's most terrifying. So Hobbes is pitting one emotion against another emotion in his picture. He's thinking that there's the emotion of pride, which is operative in the state of nature and will unleash these endless cycles of violence and aggression. And the only way to hold that in check is to be afraid of something bigger. And the terrible leader is supposed to scare you into um, if maybe not into not feeling superior to other people, but not acting on it, because it's when you act on it that you'll incite uh, reactions from the others, as our propaganda websites show. Uh, and it's also more scary because, um, it, in a way, you're importing the unpredictability and uncertainty from the state of nature and stuffing it into the will of the sovereign. So you can't predict what they're going to do. Um, you know, you hope they're going to do something that doesn't hurt too much, but you can't predict what they're going to do using the principles that are constraining them because there are no principles that are constraining them. His project was to develop a science of morality and that one really very, very modern feeling argument he makes is that there is no objective good or evil. It's sort of just it's just convention or it's it's will. And, you know, in his case, what what really matters is the sovereign's will. What is he doing with this science morality and, and how does he think about I guess morality is good and evil. So take the case of promising. Um, you might think, well, the fool has said in his heart, you know, wouldn't it just be better if I went off and did my own thing, even if I told you I'd do something else? Um, and and Hobbes's, uh point is that actually, if you're in the state of nature, it would be. <laughs> um, but he recognizes that that's some sort of um, something wrong with that result. And so his picture is that you need political arrangements in order to have morality. So you need political arrangements in order for us to be able to make promises to one another um, and behave in ways that are you know, morally right. In the state of nature, there is nothing to hold any individual accountable for their actions. But their actions still impact others. 
Hobbes argues that we need political order to hold us accountable for our actions. This helps to define good versus evil, right versus wrong, and it provides a framework for how to behave in a way that is morally right. He thinks that without political arrangements, um, there won't be any chance for morality actually to be operative or for us to even have the right motivations. Um, so that's the way in which, uh, that's where he's, that's, it, it seems a little odd. I mean, you might think first comes morality and then hopefully you make laws that are, you know, connected enough to morality to not be immoral. Um, but for Hobbes, it's, it goes the, the other way around. What do we know about how its ideas slowly filter into uh, the political institutions and and state making processes that that, that that happen over the next few hundred years? It had enormous influence on on political philosophy just in the questions that were asked and the ways of answering them. Um, that that's where I see. I mean, you know, he had so many modes because he, you know, he wrote as an historian, he wrote as a sort of religious, anti-religious thinker, he wrote as a philosopher, and it was common to write in all of those modes. And now from our vantage point where we um, separate those strands, um, you know, we, we, trace the stra- we, we trace the strands separately. Um, but he had an enormous impact on... Um, you know, on really centuries. I mean, I can't think of another thinker who's had more impact on modern political philosophy, you know, for longer because, you know, he kicked off the social contract tradition. That's pretty amazing. So what what is the afterlife of the social contract um, theory? You know, how does it continue to inform the way that we think about our political lives? Well, it's it's taken up by Locke and by Rousseau uh, and by Rawls, um, all of whom are asking about what kinds of um, political arrangements would it be reasonable to consent to or to agree to, um, to agree to be governed by. Um, and uh, that's, that is the tradition of what they call ideal theory. There are other traditions in American um, political thought. Uh, African-American political thought is... Um, is focused on, you know, questions that are, um, they're, they're focused more on what's happening at specific places and times. So the abstraction that you see in Hobbes, you know, reaching up through Rawls, um, it had its strong points in that it, it showed what, it showed one way that you could approach the question of how should I think about what sorts of policies we should have? Actually, this isn't just what would be good for me personally. Um, but if I, it, what is the, um, frame of mind I'm supposed to be in when I ask whether this is a good law, whether this is a good policy, or how should we arrange an education system. In African-American political thought, it's very different. Um, you find pamphlets, you find responses to, um, you know, the uh, terrifying and, um, you know, paradoxical situation of humans not treated as humans um, and the terrific problem of, is it ever going to be able to work out here? You know, just living for centuries with the contradiction of um, a country that says, um, avows itself a democracy and has exactly as Hobbes could say would have pointed out, you know, gosh, a lot of practices that uh, are at odds with that, raising the question of, well, are these avowals real? Are they for real? Are they serious? Um, are, they certainly don't seem to be operative. So are they even aspirational? And um, that question is just taken far more seriously. I think listeners who learn about Hobbes will think, well, he was wrong. I mean, we don't all want absolute monarchs, monarchies anymore. I mean, he basically lost the argument. And Western governments pretty much uniformly decided to go towards 
liberal constitutionalism? Well, I mean, I think in the long view, democracy, it didn't really carry the day. And it's extremely fragile. You know, maybe questioning the premise of the question, it didn't exactly cover the day. I mean, from the point of view of, you know, um, r- ruling classes in America and Europe, it can sure seem that way. But there's a there's a kind of illusion of inevitability to that um, that we now see is an illusion. Um, but yeah, he was wrong. Um, um, you know, what's the value of reading him, even though he's wrong. Well, along the way, he is he is highlighting, perhaps accidentally, but he's certainly highlighting the main challenges with democracy. Um, he's seeing very sensitive to those challenges, not under that mode of presentation, um, but he's sensitive to the challenges that are, in fact, challenges of democracy. Um, you know, why is it so hard to have mass participation? Why is it so hard to have, you know, rational discussion and then actually reach a conclusion? You know, at, the, at a certain point, you need to just decide. Um, and what are the mechanisms for doing that? Will they really be stable? I mean, you could say he was right. It's very difficult and it won't be stable. <laughs> um, so it takes a kind of ongoing participation to keep it short up. And, you know, we need theorists of democracy that, and we have theorists of democracy that will, you know, give us some ideas about how that might work. You're at a cocktail party. Um, a whippersnapper grad student comes up and says, uh, Professor Siegel, how, how did Leviathan change the world? It changed the world by um, by the questions it asked about political association. Uh, it changed the world by asking, what would life be like without political institutions? We will always face challenges when trying to govern ourselves because there is no one right way. It is a process of constant striving. Hobbes introduced a new way of thinking about politics, which influenced political philosophers for centuries. He viewed politics through a psychological lens and invited readers to answer the central questions of governance by asking what life would be like without any government at all. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Dew. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.